G'day everyone and welcome to Life in the Peloton. This is another episode. I'm sitting here with Lionel to preview this episode, mate. Welcome to the preview. Hello, Mitch. How are you doing? I'm doing well, actually. I've recovered. I had the opening weekend. I'm back into racing. I'm into the full racing calendar right now. I've had the Het Volk or Het Newsblad. I keep calling it that race. I don't know why. It's something wrong with me. Het Newsblad. Kern and Brussels Kern, just a couple of days ago, the week before that, I had Hudvar, which certainly really shocked the system. This weekend was a shock, but not as much as I thought it would normally be. Back on the cobbles. I mean, Het Volk, for listeners who are perhaps a bit newer to cycling, it's been called Het Newsblad for a number of years now uh, because the Het Newsblad newspaper, which runs the race now, took over the old Het Volk newspaper, which founded the race, um, I think, just after the Second World War. So, uh, like a lot of races, stage races and one-day races, started by uh, newspaper people. So, yeah, if people are a bit unsure of uh, why it's got this strange name, Omloop Het Newsblad, basically means Circuit Het Newsblad. But it goes uh, goes around all of the Flandrian climbs, doesn't it? Uh, it's a, They call it the sort of mini tour of Flanders. And, uh, well, it's, a, it's not all that mini, is it? 200k, cobbles, climbs, a tough day out. It's a very tough day out. And typically it has very bad weather because it's sort of that month before or three or four three weeks before the classics normally kick off and it's just that little bit earlier it's spring well spring has just sprung but it's typically freezing cold and raining and i tell you what we stroke a luck card this year because it was sunny it was 10 degrees and sun and it really changed the racing i'm not going to say it was easier but it just made the elements much better and you weren't fighting the elements you were just fighting the race which is hard enough in itself But I really need to set up this episode because I love talking about this weekend and normally I preview this weekend with Luke Durbridge because the classics are here and I can finally talk about the classics and Durbo is a good mate of mine and loves the classics as well. But I thought, well, last year was a great idea that we went on the road with Strata Bianchi. I thought, hang on, I'm going to be traveling with a teammate of mine, Tom Scully. I don't think a lot of people know about him. He's a great guy. How about we go on the road with myself and Tom Scully? But... There was a few hiccups on the way. It wasn't as smooth sailing as I thought. We went to the airport on Wednesday and how it normally happens is we go up on the Wednesday, Thursday we do a recon of the the race, we check out all the old climbs, the the roads and everything again, familiarise ourselves. Friday we have a rest and Saturday we're into it. Saturday and Sunday we're racing. Tom Scully and I get up, we get up to Barcelona because these are new protocols now with COVID. We had a test on Sunday, Sunday morning before our last stage of Hudvar. We thought a COVID test, we thought that would be perfect to fly out on Wednesday. Lo and behold, we get to the airport Wednesday. They tell us to check in. Uh, You've missed the 72 hour uh, required time for a test slot for Belgium. We missed it by a couple of hours. We can't let you on the flight. Go home and get another test. It was a disaster. Yeah, it was a disaster. So we just went, well, what are we going to do? We missed the recon. But at that moment there, I thought, you know what? I'm going to start the recording. This is actually not too bad. Let's talk about it. So I was out on the road with Tom. We started the recording that day and we let the weekend unfold. And I have you guys with us the whole weekend. It's a bit of a different episode, but along the way, we talk about the opening weekend, we talk about the recon, we talk about Tom Scully. It's great to find out who he is too and how he got to be pro. So I really wanted you guys to feel like you're with me along the way. 
I hope that's the feeling you get. Anyway, if you don't, there's some really good nuggets in there and uh, some great stuff to listen to. Without further ado, I hope it's set that up for you. Sit back and enjoy this one. A weekend on the road with the EF boys doing the first classics of the year. Enjoy, guys. Yeah, I did mine this morning. So here we are, just before we take off. Where are we, mate? Um, We're at the big roundabout that takes you out to the bottom of ours by the bike shop, just two minutes down the hill from your place. But more importantly, what country are we in? Girona. Where should we be? We should be in Belgium. Right now, we should be in Belgium. So now we're doing today's our own recon, Spanish opening weekend recon. Should we hit it? Let's do it. All right, buddy. What do we normally do on a Belgian opening weekend recon? It's the first recon of the classics. What do you normally do on that weekend? So yeah, normally probably travel up three days before, the likes of today. Thursday would be recon day. We'd uh, all meet at the hotel the night before, we'd get on the bus in the morning and uh, roll out to part of the course that the DS is a see it's been the hard part or where the final is going to start and then went right from there to the finish line just to check the equipment the tyres bikes here's the foam but oh here's the big boss here Andreas alright Andreas is calling in What the big boss have to say? Uh, he just said uh, you guys are not the only ones. He's he's heard uh, other teams also had guys not making it. So who knows where they're doing their recon? But we're down here on the Costa Brava doing ours. <laughs> and that's what I wanted to say. How's our recon looking so far? So we've hit around the the ups and downs of Lagostera. Now we're doing the Murder Romania. Murder Romania, a bit of a. Rec- Recovery down the other side and over into La Bisbal. Alright, we'll check in later. Alright mate, recon done. We're coming down Els Angels back into Girona. How are your sensations out there mate? Oh, best recon ever had mate. Weather's good now, sunny, few nice climbs. Ready for uh, Belgium. Yeah, it's what we know down here in this part of the world so uh, just got to soak it up now. Couple hours on the plane, and uh, we'll be up there. All right, let's get it done. All right. Well, now we're in the car, and we're on our way to Barca. Day two. Tom's driving. Belgium Classics. Here we come. All right. Well, let's get away from the classics for a minute and find out who I'm actually talking to. Tom Scully from Cromwell, New Zealand, down the South Island, very south, down near Invercargill. Scud, tell me, someone from down that way, because there's no other real cyclist from down that way apart from Greg Henderson that I know of, 
How does someone like you get into cycling opposed to, you know, being a uh, blindside flanker in uh, aspiring to be an all-black? Scud, tell us about the beginning. Yeah, well, basically, I was just there um, down in New Zealand playing rugby. What position were you playing? Anywhere in the forwards, really, apart from the front row, so... My older brother and his mate started cycling, good family family friends of ours, and um, we um, used to go off to the cycling races with them. And once the rugby season had stopped, I'd sort of just tag along and just go and watch, and the guys would pry into me, you know, where's your bike, why aren't you racing, you know? And then eventually I sort of just did it, you know, got in with the, got a bike and got started with uh, friends of ours, the Tools, and um, they trained me up and committed to cycling for a couple of years there. I went um, up to the Nationals under 17, had not much idea about what was going on on the track and um, crashed in the warm-up and <laughs> hit him a pedal on the bottom of the velodrome and these sort of things, you know. Made all those mistakes. Came back down and said, all right, well, if I want to get into this cycling stuff, I'd better give it a go for a while. And um, I had an after-school job at a, at a bike shop just to, you know, learn a little bit about bikes and Cromwell. And I said, well, <laughs> The kids said I should go to um, the, you know, the other under 19s, under 17s. So I should come down to Vicargo and get started there, um, ride with them because there wasn't many kids racing in Cromwell. Like there was my brother, his mate, and that was another mate of ours, and that was it. You know, so there was no real bunch rides, like big bunches, you know, and um, racing regularly. So I was like, I'll go down in Vicargo, like the, the other guys said, and get started. What attracted you to it? Because, you know, like I said, and I was maybe a bit similar to you, I was playing rugby as well before I started cycling. And I think what attracted me back then was cycling was an individual sport and the work I put in was what I got out of it. Whereas with rugby and cricket, it was a team sport. And sometimes you were working really hard or focused or, you know, whatever, but your teammates were just doing it because they had to or just couldn't be bothered that day and... You know, that was something that I loved about cycling in the beginning. What about you? Like, you were going out there, you said you were watching it, but you weren't being in the... You weren't competing at that point. And then you started competing, and then you decided to go to the Nationals, the track. What was attracting you all this time? Why were you keep coming back? Why were you going to just go against the grain and do this sport? Like you said, there was only three people doing it in your town. You know, there wasn't a big attraction to it. What attracted you in those early, early days? Yeah, you're right, um... For me, it was like we were playing rugby. We train on Tuesdays and Thursday nights, you know, and come through the winter, you know, um, Cromwell's close to the mountains. And so every Thursday, the school would take trips for to go up the mountains for skiing and snowboarding. So the option was you leave at 10 in the morning and come home at 6, sometimes 7 at night on a Thursday and do your skiing and snowboarding for a day. But then that would take like half the rugby team, you know. So, well, there's a few of us who would wouldn't do the ski trips and we'd just stay and do the practices and then they would have six guys turn up to practice on Thursday afternoon we've got to play a game on Saturday and then there's maybe 11 turn up or you know or it was pretty hard to patch it together so you ended up playing like under 18s with my brother and his mates as well as the under 15s <laughs> and like they sort of just mixed one team in, out, out of the two you know so I was like well the attraction of cycling got me um, sort of removed that. As much as it is a um, team sport for us now, it's an individual sport as well. So the training side of it, I could go and train and the work, like you said, the work I put in was the work I got out. It, I sort of found that you can't like, um, you can't do, if 
a full season of rugby and then just start doing half a season of cycling halfway through because the kids down in the in the cities were like already doing a full season of cycling and then you turn up and obviously what happens you get first few races you're pretty nervous and you get dropped and you get spat and you you go through all those mistakes that you you make when you're under 17s you know was that happening when you went to that first nationals and you went okay whoa if i really want to do this i've got to get serious and then obviously you, you were at the bike shop and these guys gave you the link and said well if you want to get serious you got to go down to invercargill is that sort of how it happened pretty much like we used to do the um like standing start practice just on a quiet road like take the track bikes out with the scooter and just find a quiet road in the countryside to do standing starts and then we chase onto the back of the scooter to get the speed up and early early days you know do the track bikes have brakes or no 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 just a heavier tubular tire so you didn't puncture it when you're on the road how did you slow down at the end of the standing start it was the road was long enough yeah it's just a long straight road yeah <laughs> in the countryside all right well take me now then that transition okay i want to get serious the boys are like all right mate you got to get out of here you got to go down to cargo where the to the big smoke and uh, get down where the, was the indoor track there then and get into that? What was that transition like? Yeah, so at this time in Vicargo, they were just building. They've been doing it, like campaigning for many years about building a, you know, a, upgrading their track. And the dream of a 250 indoor was like the gold, gold standard, you know, so that was the dream. And then the awesome community down there put it together and um, it, was, it was happening. So just at the time I started cycling, it was um, all happening so I went to the nationals I got dusted I came back I had the option of you know living with Marty and uncle and like the other under 17s under 19s they were like why don't you come to Invercargo and race and back to my after school after school job at the bike shop and Saturday mornings I told all the how the trip went at the nationals with the mechanic and uh, he's like nah right that's it you're going to Invercargo he just decided for me, I was 16, like, he's like, you're going in for Cargill and we'll ring the shop down there. They're just setting up another psychosurgery down there in Invercargill. And uh, said, we'll ring them, we'll give, tell them we've got enough schoolboy here, he knows what he's doing, he's going to come in if you've got a job for him, that's what he needs. Tell me a little bit about now training, and you can probably allude to this a little bit more in the recent times, but training in those early days around home and around Invercargill, because this is something a lot of people don't understand that who have just access to different roads different loops you know hills whatever you know anyone around the world not not anyone but most people around the world have good training for in their area they can get there they can do it tell me a little bit about the road training around your area um back at mum and dad's in cromwell we got a lake (laughs) and there's option one is up the right hand side of the lake option two is up the left hand side of the lake the shortest loop you can do around the lake is 90 kilometers and then the left side goes all the way up the west coast of New Zealand, so you go as far as you want. And the other one goes up the centre of the New Zealand through the um, Mackenzie country, so you go as far as you want. And there is two more roads, one down to Alexandra, but it's pretty busy. And the other one coming through from Queenstown, like you only want to ride that one way. So the, the second option you have for a loop is up to the next town, Wanaka. It's like 60 kilometres basically just winds its way up no intersections and then you turn left there and then you go over the hill and then you loop back around and that's a 150k loop so when you're growing up you i guess you weren't doing too many massive rides but you know was it more or less i'm going out that road and back and i'm going to go up that road tomorrow and back is that what you did pretty much exactly that and um 
you know it's quite windy in the in the valley up the where the lake is it's kind of like a massive valley so either one way's 18 k's an hour into the headwind and the other way's you know 36 40 50 depends how strong the wind is so yeah the Invercargill was pretty appealing after Cromwell because there was just roads going everywhere um, pretty flat down there but it was just a big um, rural community where roads going left right and center and pretty windy down there too and a fair bit of rain coming in off the coast but um, yeah the wind definitely made you strong. Can you compare there to anywhere else in the world that you visited in your travels? I'd have to say the the asphalt in Cromwell would be um, the heaviest slowest asphalt in the world <laughs> that I have found so far. So those early days where I was right to the top of the lake and back like 30 k's up don't, you, you can't feel can't feel anywhere else is deader and slower in a headwind in a headwind oh she's 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 not fast so tell me now take me back to where you were you're on the track you're starting to find your legs in the track and was was it the national program you were aspiring to or the olympics or what was sort of what was your main drive in those early years before you started and undiscovering sort of the road pro scene and tell me about those those years down in Invercargill yeah so at that time um, the Kiwi under 19 boys had either just won or were just about to win the world title in the team's pursuit like under 19 level and I like under 17 I would have been and like um, I think there was maybe a magazine or something like that that they were in I was just learning this track thing and um, they'd just done that. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. I want to do that. This was the dream or idea in the back of my head. And um, so, yeah, I was getting stuck into the, the track racing, the local carnivals and stuff. And, you know, it was just looking up to guys like Sam Bewley, who still ride with them today. Um, at the time, some of the older guys were there, Hayden Ralston and Mark Ryan, off racing World Cups and stuff in the, in the National Elite Men's Team. And um, Jesse Sargent, Wesley Goff, Pete Latham, these guys were all like, I guess over the two years we progressed into under 19s, myself and Shane Archibald, and like we were sort of the next phase through, um, doing a lot of training camps and even World Cups with these guys from time to time. The first Junior Worlds for me was Mexico, training up, building up, making into the national team, obviously with the nationals, good performances there. Uh, off to Mexico, didn't go well at all. Um, back the last year, under 19 was the Junior Worlds in um, Cape Town, South Africa, again, didn't go well at all. <laughs> if I knew what I know now, I'd probably do things a little bit different, but um, at that time you just go on with whatever the advice you've got and training flat out, training flat out, training flat out, and then uh, maybe it's not the best way, you know. Yeah. So you learn these things, and um, another campaign off to Cape Town, and I was like, whoa, gee, I've been going at this cycling for a while now. Like, you know, some school years had just, just finished up, and... Um, I had to come back, I had a bit of a rest, I was back up at, in Cromwell at Mum and Dad's and like I just started working in a in a wine bottling plant and um, just factory pro, you know processing like empty bottles on a conveyor, gets filled up, boxing, packaging, moving pallets, all that stuff. I did that for about a couple of months, maybe two or three months just to get some money together and then like whoa gee, you know working in a factory you know it was, that was good good time because I was like oh yeah I've got some money coming in now it's not like this is good I can get saving up for more bike parts or whatever and um, then I was like alright I'm going to ride the tour of Southland and so I better get fit for that in November and uh, yeah they, after two failed junior worlds I was sort of a bit distanced from it all and then um, trained up for the tour of Southland 
and uh, just raced full gas with um, Gordon McCauley actually at that time. It was my first tour of Southland. We had a good, we had a good team's time trial prologue, and next thing you know, the the national team track coaches calling me up and saying, "Hey, um, good performances there in the tour of Southland. Do you want to come off to uh, Melbourne to race the World Cup in two weeks' time?" <laughs> and so then, yeah, okay. So now you're in the senior senior track program, and were you starting to think then, okay, this is you know after you started to go along a little bit, were you starting to think, okay, this is what I want to do. This is this is good. This is where I've got my, you know, finding my feet, my strengths, you eventually go on to win a gold medal at the Commonwealth Games. You know, this is like, for the Commonwealth, it's, it's. I'm not going to say it's as good as an Olympic gold, but it's it's up there. You know, it's, it's, it's special to represent your country at the Commonwealth Games, to then go on and win a gold medal there on the track. So tell me about your idea about the track in those begin in the beginning and how it sort of changed over those years to the to the top there yeah basically again like junior worlds nothing happens overnight and um off to that first world cup rode the madison and maybe the scratch race or the points race i think crashed in the madison you know just never just boom clicked straight away um many more world cups happened went off to under 23 UIV like uh, a Madison it was only a three day in Amsterdam and then so one world tour of Southland one world cup the three day in Amsterdam over to Manchester for another world cup home for the Oceanias and all of a sudden I've been around the world like bang 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 but I've been racing 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 constantly and then things are like on the track I could I could sort of you know move around all right after all that racing did the good performances the Oceanias and then boom off to the world. So again, I think I crashed at the worlds. And like it's part of racing. It's never really um, flowed that flowed that smoothly. But a um, couple of years at the worlds, and then I sort of went away from it because my performances weren't that good. Uh, the national team coach sort of said, "Okay, well, what's the plan now? We're off to Belgium and uh, as a development team, and did a year over there with those those boys." Did they drop you from the national track team? Well, it was a it was a year of, of development on the road, and then come back for another summer of racing World Cups, Oceania's, think off to the Worlds, and then that's that's when the door closed. <laughs> you know, like I was proving myself riding for Southland against these older boys in the national team. Again, yeah, the Worlds didn't go so well, and then they said, okay, what are you gonna what's what's the plan now? You, I said, okay, we're gonna come back to Belgium, but um, I sort of thought, well, okay, come back to Belgium. I didn't make the Commonwealth Games for Delhi. We're going to do three months in Belgium and then just do development stuff again. It's like, no, I'm going to go. Oh, I've got a road team that I want to go and ride for. And then that's right sort of there and then in that sit-down meeting with the high-performance director at the time was he um, said, oh, okay, well, we want you to come to Belgium. If you want to go and ride for your road team, well, best of luck. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it on the track, in, in other words. Yeah, basically. And so it was my second year with this um, Chipotle development team. as a team under 23 development team based out of America and the second year they wanted us to live in Toulouse I was like yeah sweet off to Europe and then we lived in Toulouse and we did all the races that the development continental level teams were doing so who was in this under 23 team so um, we had Steel Von Hoff who I met um, in Singapore on the way over we did a crit together Um, Lockie Morden Danny Summerhill Jacob Rath um, a stack of American guys. 
Alex Howes had been there in the past, like he'd just moved up to the pro team. So, um, yeah, like we were pretty sweet. Like at the time, we were a development team for Garmin Sharp. We had uh, all the Cannondale bikes, all the Giro helmets, everything we could basically need, want, or should have to be racing in Europe. We lived down in Toulouse in this massive country farmhouse, like 10Ks from any village, let alone city. So there was a few driving lessons going in one of the team cars on how to, just on how to get to the supermarket. Guys had never driven a manual car before. And then that only lasted for about three months because the car eventually broke down. <laughs> and uh, so no more driving to the supermarket because we needed the other car to get to the races. Um, so we had one car, one mechanics van, and we would just drive all the way up France, Olympia Store, Tour of Normandy, Tour de Bretagne. Uh, off to Italy sometimes for um, Val d'Aosta. All these races, like week-long stage races that, you know, when you're 22 years old, it just you just soak up. And just fending for yourself there in this house, like you said, you, I remember you telling me this story once. It was, okay, we can't use the car for groceries anymore. Once a week or once every so often, the neighbour down the road would take you up. And if not, you'd just go on your bike. Yeah, pretty much. Um, we were so lucky to meet this neighbour. Lockie just met him out, out training one day. He said hello instead of saying bonjour. And the guy was like, what? You guys speak English? You know, and then all of a sudden he was in our house and like having barbecues with him once a week. You know, he just looked after us, would run us to the supermarket. Midnight airport runs, like loved it. The fact that we're an American team living just down the road from him. Is he American? Sorry, yeah, he's American himself with a French wife. So awesome people. I've been back to see them pretty much every year bar two since then just for a visit you know what were you thinking at this point now just to get your head around where you're at you're 22 a long way away from the south of new zealand now you're now just sort of completely immersed in the european road season but you're not under the pro umbrella yet in terms of everything organized for you to a degree you're still fending for yourself as, a, as an amateur, but now you're not with your family, you're just with a bunch of boys in this house, and even a different situation, you're 10K from town, all this sort of stuff. Were you sort of loving it then, or were you just sort of going, I don't know about this, I'm a bit homesick, the racing side's cool, but it's all getting a bit much. What was your thoughts at that point as a 22-year-old? One thing at that age is, yeah, it was a continental team, but like, they were paying me a little bit of money, like enough to I could live off comfortably and, you know, not be in the red. That was cool, like they, you treated a little bit like a professional, but also the, the end of the year was like, um, there's the thing called the stage year, you know. Um, and that was like kind of my whole, like I'd watch guys like Jesse and Sam come through the Livestrong program off the track. Jesse Sargent, you know, Sam Bewley on the Livestrong program and they um, then did the stage year and then they, they bumped up to the pro team and I was like well that's kind of the pathway I want to take but with my team you know and I was you know proved myself enough in that second year with the team that they, they wanted to give me a run as a stage year and an opportunity to step up so not only had I done all these awesome races around France and um, around Europe but then I got into the stage year role and that was like okay this is the next step I go and ride with the big boys and it's not just about riding and racing results and you know it's can you fit in and all this stuff as well so yeah then you're off to some real races I think my first race was I had to fly back to America there was a like a six kilometer prologue I took a TT bike I took disc wheels I took spare disc wheels 
I took race wheels, I took my road bike, I took my spare bike, I took, this was like the first test, just travel with all this equipment <laughs> by yourself from France to America and uh, I think it was the Tour of Elk Grove or something like that. At the time there was like Christian van der Velde, he was, he was racing and I get there right and like normally a 6k prologue is probably pretty good for me coming off the track and things like that. And we didn't have a DS because it was just a smaller race before, I think it was like the Tour of Colorado or something at the time, a bit of a warm up for the older pros. And uh, they basically just said to me, the mechanic said, all right, whatever happens, just go out there and ride really easy. Like, take it easy because, you know, you need to just get around and be safe. I was like, okay, is this the first test for me as a stage year, whether I even listen or not or what? I didn't know, this is how much I didn't know. So I got out there and I start off and I'm feeling pretty comfy and I just took it easy. I get back to the bus and I still remember it, Christian Van der Velde was like, said something like, what happened homie? The old dude smoked you <laughs> or something like that. And I was like, well, I just, he said just ride easy. So I just rode easy, you know, like, and I just felt, oh, okay. Did the next two days and boom, I was back off to France. And What happened with the stagiaire? It, it never eventuated into anything. No, no, I didn't really, but I did a lot of cool races, Perry Tours, some time in Belgium. My last race for the season was um, heading back to New Zealand, they sent me to Japan Cup. And at this time I'd already known that I wasn't getting a a role with the big team. And I sort of coming like, well, yeah, that was pretty cool and doing all these races. And I want to sort of keep going, but I didn't have any options at all. Were you really disappointed when you heard that or? It was something that, well, because like the way you made it sound there was, okay, I've seen Bules do it, I've seen Jesse do it. If I can just get that stagiaire role and do half okay, I'm probably going to get a contract. Is that what you sort of thought? No, nah, I didn't know at all. Oh. I, I sort of thought, like, yeah, of course that's what I hoped for, but I, at the same time, I didn't really know. Yeah. Like, it came through that there wasn't one on the table, so that was fine. And off to Japan Cup, and this one year at the, at the race, Gary Beckett, he he sort of said to me what are you doing next year like uh, this is after Japan Cup we're just having dinner at the hotel and then flying out the next morning he said <clears throat> as we're packing up he said I know a team in the UK that might be a good fit for you I, was, I think I had an, an iPad or something at the time like you know I didn't really have a phone that worked in Europe that was another thing but um, I had this iPad I had just sent them an email the team that he suggested and, and um, was rally in the UK I sent them an email I um Gary's just recommended that your team would be a good fit for me. And then I got on the plane, flew back to New Zealand, like had nothing. And uh, I didn't really know what my next steps was. But when I landed in New Zealand, there was already like, yep, sounds great. Let's have a Skype call in the next next few days when you land. So literally landed, mum and dad picked me up. We drove home to the airport from the airports, like 50 Ks. And then um, opened the emails and it was, let's have a Skype call. Um, had a conversation for about 20 minutes on Skype and within like an hour of being home there was a contract from this team because <laughs> they were like the UK time it all just worked you know like so literally 12 hour flight with nothing to 20 minutes in the door and there's a contract on the table and I'm off to the UK. Alright, so I thought I'd just quickly touch base because this is quite a long trip. 
and we started in Girona this morning, went for a ride together, then we drove up to the airport in Barca, then we flew to Frankfurt, which is where we're at now, and then we need to get across to Brussels. So we're at a little stop over here. It's like doing an international flight, and I just want to quickly get Tom's thoughts on what it's like travelling again after a big period and back in the weird way of travelling. I didn't... I completely underestimated this again yeah it's definitely harder than it used to be um, things used to flow pretty easy at airports uh, I think we had three documents maybe four documents needed just to get on the plane for a starter procedures getting on and off the plane are a lot slower loading the plane now we've got a two hour wait until the next one it's going to be late night so add it all up and she's not as fun as it used to be to get up to the classics which are well worth it which is my next question <laughs> Why do we love these things, the classics? And why do you love them? Because it's not a common thing for us not being from Europe, especially not from Belgium. These guys grow up with this. For us, well, for me anyway, it was a thing I had to learn. I didn't really see it much on TV before I came across. The internet wasn't that big before I came across. Why did you find yourself... I don't know if you're in love with them, but why did you find yourself going into these classics and what what is it about these races that you like well it's definitely a love-hate relationship they're just so bloody hard yeah racing in small roads and rough roads cobblestone roads nothing feels fast about it on the on the concrete block roads that we we do race on plus then you enter into the cobblestones you want to go fast you have to be really on a good one i remember my first time i did them the the feeling i had afterwards was like holy shit these are these are real bike races. These are really, really hard bike races. Why? Just because you go up there and you turn up and you think you're, think you're going pretty good. You know, you've trained pretty hard all winter. Or in our case, we quite often we come off the Tour Down Under and the Sun Tour and the Cadell's Race and had a training camp, got all the new kit, you head up to Belgium, you think you're going pretty good. Then all of a sudden you're not. <laughs> you just get processed. It's, it's a hard place to start. You're just another number. That's the one thing I found out. It's like you said, you've got to train hard. You've got to know as much as you can about the parkour. You've got to really fight. You've got to mentally motivate yourself continually throughout the day. Come on, no, it's where I want to be. Come on, keep moving up. Come on, come on. And to do all that, sometimes you're just another number. And that's a good day to not be spat out by the machine almost. Exactly. If, if you're still in a reasonably sized group, coming across the finish line if you make it to the finish line you've had a good day you know things have gone gone your way you've had some luck you've had obviously had the legs and it's a good sign for things to come it's just when we look at opening week it's, we call it opening weekend and why why is it called the opening weekend it's the it's the first uh, time we race in belgium um ahead of the classics season the classics to come so it's a great test to to find out where you're at and how how the winter training stacked up um, ahead of the, the big classics to come. Tell me about this with the opening weekends, a feeling I have for it. It can be the worst and the best thing for you because what can happen up here is you can get a warped opinion either side. What, explain that a bit more. You can come up here and have a good day and then think you're all high and mighty ahead of the classics, which is probably not a good thing. Um, you can come up here and just get processed by the machine, by the system like we just talked about and... Uh, that can go okay this is where i'm at now there's a stage race coming whether terreno or Paris nice um, and it's the last chance of improvement you've really got the last stepping stone towards the big the big one days in about a month's time 
we look forward to doing these races all year and then suddenly on the eve of them there comes this little bit of well for me anyway I guess it's a little bit of fear and a little bit of nervousness around it because you just like I just well we both spoke about how hard they are and how much your day can differentiate by just small things punches taking a corner on the wrong side of the roundabout suddenly you lose 50 wheels you can never get back before that climb and so on and so forth so the nervousness comes in and there's always for me what brings me back is this maybe it's my year this year you know maybe it's gonna happen um and whatever that might be is that something that you have like we were talking about it today out on it was nice being in Girona because we escaped the recon and maybe three weeks ago I was looking forward to the recon but as it came on the eve of it now the race is on the eve it's sort of like do I really want to be up here totally uh it's there's definitely an element of not nervousness like there's a wee twinge there's a wee you know we pull up there on in Ghent on Saturday morning in the big shed basically behind the, the velodrome there where they run the six day and all the buses park inside so it's kind of a gloomy sort of a feeling anyway then you're into the velodrome and the smoke machines are going the DJs are there the tunes are pumping the crowds well, probably not this year, but normally pretty well packed in there. Um, Mitch Docker fan clubs outside our bus. Mitch Docker fan clubs outside the bus singing like a football football hooligans. You know, we've missed it this year. The the first time we turn into the cobbles, whether it be the recon or it's going to be race day on Saturday now, you really forget how rough they are. Like, it's turned into the first sector this year and I'll be like, boom, all right, here we go, we're on. There's that passion in there that, that we've got in us coming, you know, just like you said how how can I make the front this year like maybe it's my year maybe I'm going to make the final you know yeah anticipation's real hey Scud so now we're really in Belgium and we've just ridden the Skelter. We're back. Sun is shining. What are you thinking, mate? Happy to be back here? Oh, back. Belgium's Belgium, mate. Doesn't change, does it? <laughs> Bike pass on the road. Couple sector here or there. Feels good to be here after our long travels. Yeah, it does. Sun shining and uh, already been around the guys, you know, you feel good pre race day ride. Massage this afternoon, nice lunch, nice dinner, thumbs on. Beautiful. Alright, so night before, we're here, we're at Hotel Lockeren. This is our little base up in Belgium. Um, I've spent a fair bit of time here. You've actually spent more time than me here. Describe the hotel, but also describe what happens in Belgium for people who don't live in Belgium over the classics period. Yeah, well, the hotel here is, um, it's not like a skyscraper or anything like that. It's a, it's a smaller hotel. I don't even think it's part of a chain. It's a one-off. And, um, you know, we pretty much, when we move in as a team, especially now in the COVID times and um, separate rooms and everything, we pretty much take over the whole hotel. So it's a it's a good, good feel here. Our staff are happy because there's a running track out the back around the lakes and they can get around there and um, we'll get really well looked after with the food awesome food here so for me it's a bit of a homely feel um this is my fifth year in the team now so 
they started this hotel when I first joined. So um, we come up riders who aren't from Belgium or the Netherlands or this this part of the world. We come up from Spain. Opening weekend, we're only here for a few days, but when, once we get into the classics block, it's like like I'm here for a month. Once we come up again, all the way through to Roubaix, we move out the last last week or so, but it's a month on the road, so you really settle in, you really make it home, and uh, you just spend a bit of time here. What do you do to make hotel life more like home and not feel like a hotel? Get up every morning and make my own bed, have a shower after breakfast, the normal things. Do you make your bed at home? I make my bed at home, yeah. Okay. That's funny because I don't make my bed at home, but I make it ritually when I'm away on a race. Like I can't leave the hotel room without my bed being made. As soon as I get home, I'm more than happy to get up and get going in the day without making my bed. <laughs> Send the old messages out to a few friends and family, um, Instagram, WhatsApp, whatever's going, Facebook. When I'm actually on my bed, I try and get a bit of time to do those messages that I never actually get around to doing much. Do you sit on the bed or do you try and sit at this little desk thing here sometimes to try and change things up? In the past, when I was running a laptop, I set up a wee office in the corner um, with the table and uh, chairs, but now I'm tending to just slide onto the bed a lot more and just be lying down the whole time. All right, let's get into the race tomorrow. We've just had our big meeting. We do our meetings. If anyone doesn't know, what happens before races is we have this team meeting, and on a stage race, you probably do that every day in the bus just before the race because there's not a lot of time it's better just to talk about the race just before the race so it's fresh in your mind and at the end of the race some teams debrief we do it on and off our team in the bus at the end of the race before you go to the hotel but classics we do a big meeting the night before because there's too much to cover the morning of the race you want to just get to the race and have your time to get dressed sign on all that crap so we've just had our meeting downstairs before dinner and then it's dinner run us through the team meeting, mate. What do you think of that, and how's it go for one of these classics? Um, these these classics meetings we have, the race pre race meetings we have, like it's as close as what we as bike riders would be like in an office having a board meeting, you know, with the objectives for the week of what what's laid out in front of you. But we just go through the course in incredible detail, um, down to what kind of drink mix we want in the bottles at certain kilometres of the stage. Do we want this drink mix or do we want that drink mix, you know, at different points of the race? Um, the lifts, the rights, the ups, the downs, key sections of the race, which way the weather conditions are, analyse other riders. We just cover it all and go through the objectives, each rider's role throughout the race. Are you finding it now easier? Because I remember when I first started these meetings and I didn't know the roads because in the team meetings I have to refer to different hills, you know, that we go on the Harhook. We go to Leeberg. After the Leeberg, we go down to the Beendries, over the Beendries, and then we've got the big road. After the big road, we're heading up to the Valkenberg, and after the Valkenberg, we're going down, and then we're going up Vossenhol. Blah, 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 blah. For me, in the first few years, it took a long time to understand what anyone was talking about. And you got in the book, and you're trying to follow in the book. What did he just say, Vossen, what? And now, it's funny, as they're saying those names, my mind is running through that road like I'm on a video game, and I'm watching it on on Zwift like oh yeah that's right top of that climb are you doing that now are you at that point yeah like for a start I had no idea what was going on and it's not something you can just like okay read this and you'll learn it it's you just have to spend time doing it in the early years with this with this team I came out and did a few recons and still had no idea what was going on but yeah it wasn't like so much the the names of the hills or the climbs or the the cobble sectors it was 
we're going to race until the petrol station. At the petrol station, we're going to turn right. You know, here comes the bus stop. Get past the bus stop all the way along until we get past the, the field with the big mushroom mus- uh, statue in it, you know. And, and we go across that sector that hurts like hell and I got dropped there last year. I think even tonight there was, you know, where the, that Mercedes passed us in the recon yesterday, you know, on that piece of road, you know, with things like this. You just have to spend time to it and time doing it. And the more, as the years have gone on, like the more common uh, or the more frequent we've been doing it, the more um, you get to know them. So definitely helps knowing where you're going um, up here in Belgium. Let's talk about tomorrow quickly. Head news, blood, first classic. What do you expect personally? And what do you expect from the race as a whole? Just, I expect hard, fast. I mean, there'll be times where it's a little bit calm, but there's rolling out of the start and getting there it's everyone's like it's finally here you know the thing we've been training for all winter um the start's about to happen and then we just leave t- leave town at a fast rate of knots and um just it's just going to come thick and fast and we're going to get to the business end of the race and it's really going to come it's pretty simple really if you've got the legs you'll you'll have a good day if you don't you'll ask yourself a few questions as you're riding into the finish what are you secretly hoping for yourself? Because no one's going to hear this until the races have happened and we can check in tomorrow night and see if it happened. What are your mini goals in your head? I know you've got the team, the team plan. Well, let's tell me, tell me what the team role is for you tomorrow and then tell me what your personal goals are, what you want to get out of the race. Well, um, yeah, we've got, got a fair bit of freedom tomorrow. Um, so we pick a moment in, in the race where we can stretch the legs and... and uh, try and put yourself in the in the final of the race so when you got that freedom you gotta you gotta take these chances so are we looking to get up there um in the right moments and uh where some cards what are you thinking deeper into the race the better have you envisioned the moment <clears throat> i've envisioned the moment in the looking in the race book and the kilometers on the on the thing i'm only going to know where where to go once we actually get there in the race uh, as we missed the recon yesterday yeah but uh it's going to come at a super hard part of the race and when there's guys starting to go that's you just got to tag yourself on one of those groups going and that's how you play your cards is that are you going to be able to so at this point one thing i do to myself is i go how do i want to feel when i get into the bus tomorrow or how do i want to feel getting on the flight tomorrow night what am i going to be able to sit back and go yeah i'm happy with that what that what is that moment going to be for you tomorrow where you can get on the bus and go yeah you know what i'm content just playing the cards when that we and when that opportunity arises to play the cards play them don't don't sit on it don't go oh, i should have gone don't spend the next 15 going going is now the moment just if you feel it go um obviously the tank's going to be empty at the end of the day um but don't come back to the finish with anything left in the tank Well, there we have it. Opening weekend done. Done and dusted. We're sitting back in the bus with two solid days of racing in the legs. And we're heading to Paris, actually, to fly back to Spain. Long way around, but it's looking good. I've got Tom here with me, my travelling companion. Mate, we didn't get the chance to check in last night. It was a really late night. So let's first of all start off with Het Newsblad, the first race that day. Tell me how the race went down, mate. Well, we had a pretty pretty relaxed start as opposed to other years. A cold, foggy start. 
but um, the roads are dry. So the bunch was, for, well, for opening weekend at least, was somewhat relaxed heading out there, the first 100k, and then the race really cracked off, so uh, it was short-lived. But a uh, bloody hard day, as always. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much how it went. Now, run me through your role, firstly, and then secondly, run me through what we talked about the night before, your ideas about what you wanted to get out of the race and how that ended up. Well, yeah, you had, had, I had the envision in my brain to go as far and deep into the final as I could, but uh, it wasn't to be the case, as, as per usual. Um, sort of run out of legs here this weekend, um, a bit earlier than what I thought I was going to have, and... Uh, yeah, you start uh, questioning yourself there when you're riding in in the Gruppetto, going, whoa, I've done all this training all winter, but uh, I make it 160 k's into the race, and uh, she's good night nurse. What was your job exactly? Job exactly was to um, help help our two leaders um, into key moments of the of the bike race uh, before a certain sector or before a certain corner, and uh, be there if we could. But uh, that was all going up in smoke um, as we're fighting into these corners and like it's a super super hard uh, thing now because every director and every one of those team cars is telling their riders their seven riders the exact same thing corner at 153 be in the front okay the road's only so wide and there's not exactly 100 room for 160 bike riders to go around that corner in the front so things happen and there's plenty of leaning on, plenty of elbows out, and as we saw, multiple crashes in each one of these corners. Tell me about one of the most memorable parts of Saturday for you. It could be a good or bad, but something that sticks in your memory from this year's opening weekend. Because for me, the last time I did it was two years ago, and actually every year I remember it being very bad conditions. Um, two years ago it was raining and it dried up, and you know you're just fighting the weather and the cold but this year and the stress this year like you said it wasn't as stressful but things amped up the break went pretty easy but then you know with the good weather that meant everyone was a bit fresher when it came to the harder sectors so things exploded towards the end so for me i came unstuck on uh, the molenberg took a cheeky shortcut if anyone's watching on TV, you'll just watch it and you'll see me take the cyclocross route, which gets you halfway through the peloton. <laughs> From the back to the front in no time. So, um, and then we sort of gathered up there. But what was something that you remember from the day that sticks out? I actually had uh, Chris Lawless come up to me about three kilometres before the Molenberg. And he said to me, ah, I always find myself riding with you here at this Molenberg every year. I said, that's it, mate. This is usually where it's all over. And sure enough, that was to be the case. So he called it three Ks out. Yeah, there was a crash in the corner before the Molenberg. Sprinted down for the next two Ks to turn left into the Molenberg. And same thing again, standing still at the bottom as you see the front of the peloton racing off across the top. So uh, it's, it's, it's a bloody hard thing to get right. But, you know, that's what it is opening weekend. It's it's the start it's it's the start of what's to come so uh you definitely know where you're at after after saturday's hit news blood all right let's quickly go into kern then kern brussels kern so very untypical to a lot of one day races is that we have two big one day races back to back which for me often can be the worst thing because you go into head volk 
or head newsplad, sorry. You go into head newsplad thinking, ah, oh, I'm not really on it today. Ah, oh, I'm just going to pull it up and save it for tomorrow. And then you get into Kerno and you realize, well, I still did it, whatever, 150, 160K in the race. So you're tired. And you get into Kern and you think, ah, I'm a bit tired from yesterday. You end up having two sub-par races. Opposed to just committing to one race, one day race, 100% emptying the tank. That can be a bit of a, a curse with that. So then, after the first day, coming to Kern, were you thinking to yourself, okay, I want to make up for something, I want to prove something, or were you like, look, I'm content with where my form's at now, I know i still got some work to do, and I'm just going to have to try and be the best asset that I can for the team. What were you thinking about today's race? Obviously, uh, yeah, the day before was super hard, so uh, didn't exactly have the diamonds in my legs, is a common term that's used. So uh, when you know your level's not quite there, and then you got to line up again the next morning. You know, it's get home to the hotel, big plate of pasta, or massage, big plate of pasta, and then it's like, okay, the pasta's done, it's not relaxed now, It's let's go through to the next room and have a meeting about what we're gonna do tomorrow. It's sort of a bit, ugh. Yeah, I think my approach coming into Kona was, uh, okay, we've been chewed up and spat out yesterday, just how much can we take again today? And in my mind, I was like, oh, I just gotta push as hard as I can to, take every little bit out of this race to uh, to go forward through the next coming races. Um, and sure enough, it was another nice blue sky sunny day in Belgium. A little bit cold, but more of the same. Just wasn't quite on it, didn't quite have it. The fighting into the corners and a few missed crashes and it's all of a sudden you're going, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not getting back to the front now. So got to make the most of it and uh, yeah, end up finding myself in a group and uh, after 158 kilometres of the bike race, we were turning off the, off the race course to take the shortest way back to um, Kona <laughs> with some local Belgium knowledge of the fastest way there. So uh, I was pretty thankful for that. Uh, how many K was it from where? So tell us about when you came unstuck and how, how fast was it back to the finish for you? So I came unstuck at a climb called the Canaryberg and then we head towards the Cote de Trier, the Quartermont, and then the last climb of the bike race, the Klusberg. After that, it was mostly tailwind back, but yeah, 155 or 158 or something. It was like, all right, guys, we turn right here. And the small group that we were, it's pretty much straight down this canal to Kona. So rather than go around and to do the final. um, So we rode the canal. I mean, the sun was shining, we were along the side of the canal, it was smooth, and the race was just gone, like, it was quiet. It was a long 20Ks back to the bus, and that whole 20Ks, you're just considering, like, what, how, why? I've just done three months of solid winter training, and it just feels like you've done it for nothing. And that's what we say about opening weekend. It can be, we said this already a few days ago, it can be the worst and the best thing. So, (laughs) those two days are done. Now we've got this travel home and uh, let's check in. I wanted to talk to you one more time on our way home and finish off that story about how you've got to where you are today. So we'll have a chat tomorrow maybe. Yeah, sure, no worries. Alright, here we go. This is the final instalment. We've started in Girona. 
we went to Barca, we went back to Girona, we went back to Barca, across to Belgium, we did our recon, we did our races, travelled back in the bus to Paris, and now we're on our flight back to the homeland, Spain. Scud, let's pick up where we left off. We started talking about the start of your career and we ended just as you were heading back to New Zealand. You'd had the call or the, the email from Rally and you, you were saying, amazing what happened in 24 hours. You went from, I don't think I don't even know what I'm going to do, get off the plane and all of a sudden you've got a contract there sitting. And I guess there's two things when I think of it is, yes, you are going away from home, but it's the, it's the same language, you know, same sort of culture. You've been in more difficult situations in the Toulouse, in France. So to a degree, was it sort of comforting knowing, okay, I reckon I can handle this? Yeah, it was. I mean, the year just gone, I'd, I'd been in Toulouse and, and we'd raced all the all the French races, you know, Tour of Normandy, Tour of Bretagne, um, up to the Netherlands for the Olympias Tour, Turingen Rinfart, Val d'Aosta in Italy, you know. Then on to do the Stagia and had a huge um, step up there with some of the, the bigger races. I was quite confident in my abilities to ride a bike at this point and, uh, you know, whatever the UK was going to throw at me, sure I'd better, sure I'd better hand, handle it. What was then your line through the UK? You went across with Rally and, you know, you eventually transferred over to Madison Genesis. Um, was there an, always an aspiration to keep growing and keep pushing and I want to get back to Europe, I want to go over to the top level? Or was it like, you know what, I don't mind this scene. I'm earning a bit of coin. I'm, I'm enjoying myself here. I'm enjoying the racing. I could just settle down and just be pretty contempt here. Yeah, that was it totally. I mean, first of all was try and get some runs on the board at Team Rally and I managed to get a few of those and, um, and a few of those crits. And, uh, you know, like um, obviously the other teams in the UK all start taking notice when you start winning races. And then um, how did, I don't even remember how it came around, but we started talking to Madison Genesis um, later on in the year and... Roger Hammond was the DS there. They were just a new team when I first arrived at Rally, so um, we raced them a lot. And uh, yeah, moved over to Madison. Had a great time there at Madison. Ended up staying where I was living in, in Derby when I was living riding for Team Rally. And it's, if anyone knows Derby in the UK, she's, um, well, you wouldn't call it the Costa Brava or a Surface Paradise in Australia or anything like that. But um, for me, it was, it was home. Uh, ended up being home for three years. I did a two-year stay with Madison. Um, mainly because just because I love the UK scene and the passion there is passion there is in the UK like the bike racing scene is is unreal you know like they're pretty particular on a lot of things like simple things like just going for a bunch ride or as they say the chain gang you have to have mud guards if you're going on the chain gang and little rules like this and how you should wear your wear your cap and everything like that so there's a big passion there and and I love being part of that too plus all the racing too I enjoyed the racing being the crits and you know, it suited my style coming off the track. So, um, actually, my second year in the UK, my first year at Madison, I was starting to wonder, like, okay, is this is this going to be it now? Do I just race in the UK for the rest of my career, or yeah, I can do well in these races here? But how do I get out? How I still had that hunger, you know, like, how do I get up to that world tour level um, into these big teams? So it was a hard one and a decision that I don't regret now. But um, First of all, I came talking with Drapak in, uh, in Australia. They were, they were wanting to, how many continental teams out there say, oh yeah, we're going to go pro Conti next year and we're going to go bigger calendar and it's going to be like this. You know, a lot of them say that. And this is what they were saying at the time. And so I was thinking, okay, do I go with them and do that 
pro Conti gig or um, do I stay in the UK where I'm quite happy and quite content and enjoy the racing scene? How did you hear about that? Like, how are you sort of in the in? Because once I, I get the feeling too that once I come overseas, it's really hard to stay in touch with what's going on in Australia. And you being in the UK, you're in your own scene. You're hearing about other UK teams. Maybe you're hearing about some little bit of European stuff, but you sort of only hear about your own little world. To hear about what Drapak was doing all the way back in Australia, and for them to think about you or you to think about them, how did that all come about? I guess it was just sort of you know. You win a few races, you, you get yourself noticed. One of the races I went reasonably well in when I was in France was the Tour of Normandy. Uh, won a prologue there and I think finished third overall with Madison. So, yeah, I think through my manager and through um, talking with the DSs and the team, they were like, okay, yeah, we'd, we'd see you fit for our team. So, look, I wanted to do it, but at the same time, I was quite happy where I was. And I, and I made the decision, you know what? No, I don't want to come. I'm going to stay where I'm comfortable and happy here in the UK and do another year, with the second year with Madison Genesis. And from that year, I had one eye on Drapak the whole year. I was like, and I was pleasantly surprised that, you know, they went out and said that what they were going to do. We're going to go and race in the States. We're going to have an uplifted program. We're going to be pro-continental. And I was like, well, shit, you know what? Those guys at Drapak did what they said they were going to go and do, bump up to pro-conti and... 12 months later we had the same conversation hey we'd really like you to come to the team um, are you interested again and at that moment I was like you know what they said we're going to be racing in the states and rah, rah, rah. I thought wow you know what hey I'm a, I'm a track rider I'm a crit rider I'm not quite sure if you know the Tour of Utah the Tour of Colorado these long um, mountain climb stage races at altitude is really going to suit me so that's kind of why I was happy in the UK. Like, I didn't want to go and throw myself into an environment where I was totally not going to fit. And I made the decision, you know what, if I don't go now, I'll be here in the UK for the rest of my career. Because it's, it's hard to win enough races for big teams to take notice of you in the UK because they go, oh, what's the scene like there? They don't even know. Come to Europe and brace properly, you know. So as much as I didn't want to leave Madison, um, I made the heavy decision to go, okay, I'm going to go off to, off to Drapak. Did Drapak then come to you that second year or did you sort of come crawling back? No, no, it was sort of mutual, I think. And, um, you know, we got to, like, December and the, the emails were coming through and, like, okay, team camp and rah, 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 and this is what's going to happen. And sure enough, one email that came through was, actually, guys, we're really going to advance the program even further in, in 2016 and we're not going to be in the States anymore, so you need to be living in Europe. So for me, that was like, oh, beauty. Like I thought I was leaving the UK, going off to race in these altitude stage races in America. But um, turned around, it was like the coin fl- flipped my way and it was, okay, we're going to be racing in Europe and going to do a full European program. So for me at the time, that was the perfect step I needed to, to lift myself up another level out of racing in the UK to onto the bigger scene in Europe. Then tell me, take me through now this transition. So Drapak sort of made that heart, that step for you, that halfway step. You're in Europe, you're racing the races in Europe, you're doing a few top level races, you're doing a few lower level races, but that's ultimately what you want to do. You just sort of want to dip your toe in, be in really good form at the big stuff, and then just sort of try and get through the smaller stuff on uh, not so good form. And just get the feel of the racing. And this was like the most ideal scenario. You'd be able to set up a base, a little bit of base in Girona, I think, and then this collaboration came with Trapak and Cannondale. And ultimately, you were one of the guys who got brought on on that deal. 
And that there was the step to the world tour. It was happening. Tell me about those transitions. Yeah, well, it was like we had a good training camp and the, the feeling was pretty good. And my whole approach coming into Drapak was like, okay, it's pro Conti now. And at this moment, it changes the cycling for me. It's like the mentality is you're either a winner or you're a helper. You're, it's a professional team. You're going to get taken to a race and they're going to give you an instruction to do your job and you go and do that. Whether you feel like winning that day or not, or can win or can't win, you just turn up and do your job. And that's the mentality I brought in. And um, our first race was the Sun Tour in Australia, you know, after a good summer down there. And we all got called in and said, okay, guys, here's a non-disclosure agreement. You're not allowed to talk about this. And basically it was saying that they were going to merge later in, later in July wow. with Cannondale. So right there, the first race, it was like, this is how this is how fast this is how hard that Michael Drapak wanted to press on with advancing his team from Continental to the World Tour and joining with Cannondale at the Tour de France so for me my eyes are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger like not only was I gone thinking I was going to race Continental uh, Pro Continental in the States now we're in Europe in July the, the team's merging with the World Tour team like the ramp of acceleration just going up and up and up as far as the progression's going, going for me. And did they make it sort of a, not like a competition, but do they sort of indicate like, hey, there's three, four riders going to go across, you need to be in the top three, four? What was that feeling like between the riders in the team? Okay, so the immediate thoughts is in that room right there and then, everyone's like, all right, I have to win races if I want to make it. But they squashed that straight away because they wanted, obviously, to have a good season with their team, Pro Continental and do it properly right there and then they said we're not going to take the guy who wins 10 races yes there'll be a percentage of riders and staff who moves to the new team um canada Drapak, but it's not about who who wins the most races you know we're going to look for helpers we're going to look for guys who do to turn up and do their job so right there and then it was come back to that mentality of like okay i'm not the guy who wins 15 10 races a year i know i can help guys win races 2016 the whole season was just all about helping my Drapak teammates try and win races whether it be in the sprints with Brenton Jones or supporting the climbers into climbs as well as you know got my opportunities would be in a time trial and I'd push for those and breakaways and things like that in these races around Europe and France. Okay well fast forward now to when the deal did happen and then you eventually pulled on the green jersey as it was back in those days what was that like and 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 getting that that knowledge that you were going to be one of the guys taken across was it not bittersweet i guess it was happy but you sort of felt like i felt sorry for some of the other guys your teammates who didn't quite make it who you thought in your mind should have been well to a level not not enough room for everyone i guess yeah it was pretty hard because like you're like uh something that you've been like slogging out all these years for to happen and then uh you're in an environment I remember being in Belgium it was still June when this when it happened for me and I'd won a race and I'd gone well in a prologue and so they okay that's enough for us Tom like you're helping your teammates we want to see you um, make that step so we'd like you to come with you they offer you the contract it's like but then you can't tell anyone yeah. you know like because if you just turn up in the morning and say hey boys I signed the new deal like you're a bloody what kind of guy are you then you know you, you weren't oh, I wasn't allowed to sell anyone so as happy as I was to sign I had to just like keep it quiet and do it all a bit like secretive like don't show your emotion I was pretty stoked and I was like okay it's getting real real now you know like 
I've made a step this year with Dropback and I've got to make another step again next year. And well, from now on, it's like I've really got to just be that professional athlete. There's a couple more things I want to ask you about now because now you're in World Tour and we met in your second year with the team when I joined the team. And what I want to sort of talk about is that that first impressions of being at World Tour. You've done a lot of cycling all over the world before there. And then, you know, we talk about this, making this jump to World Tour. Whoa, the big jump. First of all, was it a big jump? And did you feel fish out of water and learning a lot of things? Well, firstly, let's talk about that. If I go back even to my times in the UK with Madison, we, we were pretty well looked after. We were treated professionally. We had all the equipment we needed and the program was good. Like Roger Hammond really directed a good, a good program there. And I learned a lot from him and other directors that he brought into the team who had been World Tour for many years. So um, to then progress on with Drapak, it was the same mentality. Same like you turn up, you do your job and just be ready, ready to go whenever we asked. So it was kind of, the year at Drapak was a really good stepping stone towards Cannondale Drapak at the World Tour. Um, it ramps up a little bit, but also the level of support you're getting from the team, you know, um, the equipment, the swan years, it's all just, it all just ramps up and it actually becomes easy. You know, like my first race was um, the Tour Down Under and I wasn't on it, I was just a reserve. And two days from flying to Europe, you know, the Tour Down is about to start. So once the Tour Down was starts, it's like, okay, Tom, you're not needed. Off to Europe you go. So one of the guys fell sick on the eve of the tour, uh, tour down under crit. And then I had, I was literally just about to go for a mountain bike ride. I get the first email or the first phone call. It's like, Tom, where are you? Can you make it to the airport this afternoon? And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go for a mountain bike ride and then I'm going to come home and pack my bags for Europe. I just want to go for a ride first. As I was getting ready for the ride, I just checked my email. Oh shit, like, okay, yeah, I can do that. I literally got the clothes off the line, threw them in a suitcase, and we drove to the airport within a, within an hour, so I could make the flight. And I had the bare bones pack straight over to um, to Adelaide. Like the boys had already had dinner, like the pre-race meal the night before the tour down under, and I hadn't even arrived yet. You know, I ate dinner by myself, and then uh, woke up in the morning. And said, hey guys, I'm Tom. You know, like I didn't have time to think. Like I didn't have time to get nervous. It was just like turn up and do your job. You know. Well, let's fast forward then now to today's day and age, and I guess that's uh, what five years ago now that you've this is your fifth year in World Tour. Yeah, this is the fifth year. Yeah. And um, talk to me about that in your own mind, that change, and if you can think back to those early days and hitting the classics, and we've just gone through the classics, and yes, they still are a shock to the system, but you know the machine. I'm not talking just about the classics. I'm talking about the way the season goes, the role of the season, how how um, you need to be informed, how you know when to put the, the pedal down, when to back off, going into a Grand Tour, getting through a Grand Tour. I'm talking about everything. Think about in the beginning when your eyes were just getting opened up to now how you take on things as a, you know, as a well-groomed pro these days and how you, how you take it on. I mean, traditionally I've always started with Down Under after that first year. It's a great way to start because you get broken into it. It's nice and sunny and it's warm and stages aren't incredibly long and then you come to Europe the first race in Europe is always a real shock and quite often for me after doing the Australian block it's opening weekend 
And sure enough, just as we've found this weekend, opening weekend goes one or two ways. You either got really good legs and you're on a good level, or you just get chewed up and spat out like, like what's just happened. Yeah, from there, these next three, four weeks, three weeks are really crucial to bumping up this, um, bumping up the level again. You either get a Paris-Nice or a Torino in your legs before coming back to the classics. Classics, you get a bit of downtime, and then okay, righto. There's either a tour coming, whether it's a Grand Tour or um, a shorter series of shorter stage races, and then after that, things will start to simmer down after July or ramp right up again if you go on for the Vuelta. And but how do you mentally face that now? I think you know it's a big load, and you, and you've got to find out yourself, and you've got to also find your place. If you can think back to the original days sort of five six years ago when you were getting hit with these races bang down under off the cuff come across opening weekend whoa what was that and you think about yourself now and you're like yeah you still find it tough but like i said you're a well-groomed pro and that's just part of part of the day-to-day job and you know when you've got to be good and dealing with all the extra stuff you know living up in andorra sorting out all the extra stuff it's it's part of the job you know and when we say being a pro it's not just racing your bike good it's about not getting sick it's about training well it's about creating your own little bubble environment all that stuff you think about all that and you think back over the years where you're at now tell me about that realization that progression and and i guess where you're at now with that all you know um when i was first with Drapak pro condi i moved to girona and why because well my mates are there and two, I didn't really know anything else or what to do or how to do it. So that's a huge part of, of being a pro and being World Tour Pro is what, like five years in now, well, starting my fifth year, the last couple of years, I've, I've, what, I've, what I've found, what I've noticed is the training, you know, like I used to look at and go, oh my God, how am I ever going to be able to do that sort of training? That's the easy part now. You know, that's that's just what you do you like you just get on okay today i've got five hours i'm gonna go and run three climbs or whatever whatever it might be that's the easy part the living the life the making the airport shuttle the organizing your residency meetings all these other things side things that snowball into bigger things if you don't get on top of them and don't sort them out straight away that's the harder part to being a world tour pro like dealing with all that stuff like missing flights missing you know whatever it might be that can actually if you don't stay on top of that and you're not organized that actually comes back and impacts your training your recovery which then turns takes it out of your performance um it's really easy to let that stuff take over so you know at certain times of the season we uh we have really got to be on and like for me it's the classics then it's a bit of a downtime where i can really get into sorting all those things out after the classics and then okay what's next on the thing where are we where are we going next and then build towards that and finally over these years and you think back like i said think back over all those years coming through you know time in time over here and then back in the uk and then now being back in europe what are the things that you really do love of being a pro you know professional cyclist you go back to new zealand and people ask you, yeah, what is it like? What, what do you really love about doing that job? Who don't really understand it. What is it that you love about that job? About this job? I guess uh, what I really love, shit, that's the hard question. I guess I love when it all, 
you, you find a moment. It might not be that you win a race. It's not happening too often for me these days, but or when your teammate wins a race because you played a crucial role in what he was wanting to do. Um, it's a very satisfying thing. I do like the start off the winter training, the build up, you know, you go through the wave of emotions, you go from shit is this even my bike it doesn't even feel like it when you start or how am I, how do I even ride a bike to then okay the fitness is coming fitness is coming races start happening oh gee that was felt like I've never raced before to then oh I'm starting to get a little bit of form I like that process of building up the fitness getting your head kicked in a few times then you see start to see the light at the end of the tunnel all right we're getting closer it's game time now and then poof, I need some rest and then okay let's switch off for a while and then boom let's switch it all back on and set, set your targets on something else I like that whole process as an, as an athlete and as you know as a cyclist so beautiful mate that's that is exactly right that 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 process of being in control and you know setting out your goals and having everything planned in front of you I think that's a really really nice part of what we do but um well, we're getting to the end of our journey now. I hope this has been an interesting podcast for everyone. We're traveling back and this has just been a few days on the road with Tom and also a little insight to what our life is like on such a weekend away when we go racing. So, mate, thanks for being on the pod. Thanks for all your time recording. No worries. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you really enjoyed that. That was a weekend on the road with us and um, I hope you got a bit of a feel what it's like to be traveling on the road with a couple of pros. What did you think of that, Lionel? Did you sort of get the insight to there what it might be like uh, racing opening weekend one time? Yeah, I think, uh, well, first of all, doing the recon ride in Spain for the Belgian Classics must be a first, um, or maybe it's not. I mean, one of the things that came across as we heard more from Tom was just how much of uh, the lifestyle around the racing you have to crack as a pro if you're going to make it um, not just in the world tour level but any level as a pro you're know, being being organized uh, coping with the travel coping with the change to schedules and uh, he had a phrase in there talking about the racing itself that really struck me um, you know going into a race expecting maybe a certain type of feeling or a certain type of result from the day and just getting processed by the machine and I think that's you know, that's the peloton, isn't it? The peloton is this thing of all these moving parts and you don't quite know until you get in there exactly where you fit. And so these these opening races, um, they, there must be that sense of nervousness before them. How am I going to fare here? Am I going to be okay or am I going to be struggling right from the get-go? Yeah, it's something that's totally underestimated and I'm not necessarily saying it should be highlighted on TV commentary because we're focusing on the racing at that point. But that is the whole purpose of my podcast. And that's what I loved most about this episode is we finally got to sort of peel back the layers and take the varnish off it a little bit and say, hey, you know, it's a it's a big sort of organization, personal organization of life away overseas for, for us foreigners living here in Europe. Yes, there's a big element of racing the bikes. And yes, there's a big element of dealing with a race like Hit newsblad, but 
to get to that point, you've got to deal with all these things. And one of those things is traveling there in COVID times is having your family overseas. And I, I really think it's important to address that point because when you're watching it there on the television, you keep that all in the back of your mind and you can understand what's going through the lives of these professional riders. It's not just literally going out and doing six hours. Not that that's an easy thing, but as Tom said, as the years go on, that becomes the easy part. Doing all the stuff around the edges becomes the more difficult part. Yeah, and with Tom Scully's career progression, you know, just you can't take for granted or, it, or it's rather easy to take for granted uh, the number of moves and the number of steps and upheavals he had to go through just to reach the point where he could race for a world tour team i mean even in new zealand the part of new zealand wasn't uh, necessarily um, convenient for him to start racing a bike so he had to you know go and get stuck into the racing in new zealand first and then try and get himself over to europe and uh we know him over here in the UK because he rode for Madison Genesis and before that for Rally and then make that final step over to a, a team that would get him into the World Tour and I mean you know that's quite a journey anyway and uh, I really got a sense of how you know for him his career sort of unfolded ahead of him and, and he was ready to make each step as it presented itself to him. And I love how humble he is with it. You know, some of those things he was talking about, you know, I'll just move down to Dunedin and work in a bike shop, move away from my parents at 16 years old. He made it, painted this beautiful picture like, oh, great, that's that's a great idea. But you, you think about it and you're like, wow, that was a big decision, you know, and all these things he did on his own. And that's the type of guy he is. He's such a great teammate, a good friend, a humble person. And I'm it comes across in the podcast and he's a, he was a great guy to hang out with and I often am doing these trips with him and I'm so happy that we got the mic um, out for the last couple of days. Yeah, it was a great listen, Mitch, and uh, I did. I felt like I was on uh, the, the weekend trip with you guys going off and uh, and getting stuck into Het Newsblad and Kerner Brussels Kerner, obviously without doing the racing bit, you know, the actual the actual difficult bit. Well, speaking of weekends, I've got a beautiful weekend of racing coming up. I'm heading off to Strada Bianchi. It feels like I was only just there a few months ago, which I was back in August last year, but it was in the summer. I've just spoken to Matty Breschel, my director, earlier on this evening, and he told me he's at that beautiful hotel, that beautiful hotel where I wouldn't mind actually being stuck at if I did get quarantined, heading back there in a couple, in actually tomorrow morning, and we're heading into that race. So... It'll be a couple of weeks time till I speak to you guys, but I've got another episode in store for then and I'm looking forward to speaking to you or recording another episode for you to listen to then. So guys, until then, thanks a lot for listening. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.